Hey everyone, got a quick announcement to share before the start of the show. Here at SmartLogic, we have two open positions that we're currently hiring for, a junior product designer and a mid-level Ruby on Rails developer. Both positions are fully remote within the United States. Head on over to smartlogic.io slash jobs to learn more and apply. Okay, now on to the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today, joined by my co-host, Eric Ostrich. How are you, Eric? Doing good. This season, we're talking about system and application architecture, and today we're joined by a special guest, Lizzie Paquette. How are you, Lizzie? Hello. I'm good. Lizzie, you're joining us from San Francisco. You work over at Brex. Brex is a big contributor to the Elixir community. How does it feel to get to be at a company that shows up at all the conferences, that participates in so much of the open source world? Yeah, I think it's been really great. I've loved being exposed to the Elixir community through Brex. So I didn't know Elixir before I got there, but Elixir is actually Brex's first language. So we don't have any old legacy code or anything. I would say about 85% of our code is in Elixir now. Yeah, so I think I've really, as Brex has grown, I've grown with Brex and I, I've definitely leaned into the Elixir community. I think it's been such a lovely experience sort of meeting the people involved, like uh, Eric Meadows Johnson works pretty closely with us and just seeing what's out there in this language that I, I hadn't met before I started at Brex. Cool. And we'll talk a little bit more about Brex. You know, we always like to leave time at the end of the show to plug companies or whatnot, but we do like to start with you as an individual and where you got started in programming, you know, were you formally trained? Did you come through the conventional path or some other means? Yeah. So I would say I mostly formally trained, but I did get a late start. Mm. I was mostly in school. I was studying pure math and neuroscience originally, and I had actually taken a class in Java in high school and I hated it. I thought you hated Java. I hated Java. I hated programming, right? Oh, okay. The whole concept of it was just so alien to me. And I said, you know what? That's not for me. I'm never going to touch that again. I can see Java turning someone off. (laughs) Totally (laughs) normal response to Java. (laughs) Go on, though. Yeah, so then I, I delayed taking any other computer courses until pretty late in my college career, my junior year. But when I finally took one, I really ended up liking it. And I sort of caught the bug and then just stuck with it ever since. I went on to get a second degree in computer engineering. Yeah, and I just started coding that way. Was there much overlap between the pure math stuff and moving into computer science or? Yeah, so I was lucky the school I went to taught computer science in like a really old fashioned way. So they did one semester in imperative programming, was in C, and then the second one in functional programming. The functional programming part was really mathy, and we were actually writing a lot of proofs based on our code, and there was an interweaved thing of math and code, and I just really loved that. I thought it was so elegant. In functional programming, you could write really short, crisp code, and then going in and writing that it was like provably correct just really satisfied this taste I had for wanting like nice, elegant code, I guess. So... From there, I went on to work in compilers because compilers was where I could find functional programming, but that's really kind of where I got my start. Yeah, and I guess, what did you do with compilers? 
I thought I would go the academia route for a while. I worked on a Haskell to hardware compiler when I was at Columbia. So Haskell to system Verilog. That was super cool and definitely a new area for me going into the FPGA area. What, what yeah. is that? <laughs> it's like a, a programmable chip, right? So if okay. you're system Verilog, you're writing logic, circuit logic, and then you can go and take that logic that you wrote and program an FPGA to act like an actual printed chip. Is this, based on the search, is this Clash, Lang? No, so Clash is actually our competitor on that project. (laughs) But yeah, Clash is very similar. I think we were using a different intermediate representation that gave us different benefits. For example, we were better at dealing with like abnormal memory storage. So I guess take us a little bit further in the story, right? So you get the second degree in computer engineering. Did you get employed in tech immediately after that? What was your first role programming? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I did actually go straight out of school to programming. The way I found Brex is actually a very interesting story. So I was in, I was being a teaching assistant for the compilers class. And then a company came in, they were called PageDraw at the time. And they were a very cool company, essentially taking a sketch design. So you would sort of lay out your website with all the boxes as you wanted, and then converting those designs into React and JavaScript code. And the way they marketed it, to me at least, was as a compiler. So I was like, oh my gosh, so cool. Like I never thought I would find a small company doing compiler work. So from there, I reached out to them and I was like, wow, I I love your product. And I I signed up to work with them. Interestingly, about eight months down the line, when it came time for me to start working there, they ceased operations. Essentially, they got scooped by FramerX that was doing a, a similar thing. And they were like, oh, but, you know, we're all going to Brex. Do you want to come? And that is how I ended up going to Brex. So you did get to work at this page draw company? No. So I in-flight changed. In-flight changed. Essentially, the the week I was supposed to join, PageDraw stopped, and I switched to work at Brex. Wow. So Brex has been your entire career in tech up to this point? Yeah, essentially. Wow. So I guess I'm just curious, like, how long into Brex's existence was it when you started there? Yeah. So I think it was pretty early. Brex was about 30 people when I started. And I think they had been around for like just you know less than a year ish, depending wow. on where you when you say they start. And so I've been working at Brex for about two years now, and they're they're at like 500 people. So things have really changed while I've been there. Yeah, real rocket ship startup. That's awesome. I guess let's segue into kind of that part of the conversation. Though, like, what is your role over at Brex, and how has it sort of evolved over time? Yeah, so I work on a team at Brex called the Systems Team. We own mostly you know, frameworks, libraries, generic services. So you can think of like our events, our asynchronous events service, search, our notifications platform that sends out like text push SMS, and then you know more kind of things that affect everybody's service, like the messaging between services. And has that been where you've been the whole time? Have you moved around at all? 
I have actually, I've been a fixture of this team, but this team has changed quite a bit. So I guess originally we we didn't have teams. We were just one team called Core, and I, I lived there for a while. Since then, our team has evolved from sort of owning everything that no one else owned, everything that wasn't product specific, to becoming more focused and being like, okay, we really want to own frameworks, right? And sort of be a platform-esque team. So... Brex, as we've mentioned, is pretty big. Does Brex contribute back any at all to community projects, open source, anything like that? Yeah, so we we contribute sort of when it has been useful to us, and we want to get more involved. So one project that I've been working on recently is we have forked the Curtibuff Elixir compiler made by Tony612. So when you have... Protobuf is a kind of like JSON, like it's a structured messaging format. And when you use the Protobuf, it's nice because it's a it's language agnostic. So lots of different languages accept Protobuf and they know how to communicate via Protobufs. But one hangup is that in Elixir, the compiler that turns Protobuf into Elixir structs is kind of new. It's just maintained by Tony. And one hang up is the some of the structs when they're converted into elixir they're not really easy to use so you can think of there's a struct google timestamp which is a very standard struct in protobufs in elixir it doesn't match well with the date time struct that we typically use and like pass around to keep to like record times right so one thing we added is kind of making a natural casting between the two via field options in the protobuf. So you add this extension onto your field and then you get the proper Elixir struct that you wanted. And you can kind of treat these structs instead of like being such foreign entities that you have to put through some conversion, you just get the struct you want straight out of the compiler. So it's also been nice that even though I, I didn't end up working at that compiler startup, I've still been able to do some compiler work at Brex. This is a little bit off script, but we go off script all the time on the show, so it's not a big deal. But, but I'm curious, because you've been, done so much work on compilers, and for a lot of people in the industry who have come through sort of non-traditional or non-conventional backgrounds, it seems like really daunting to get into compilers and like what that even means. So like, do you have any, I guess, tips for someone who maybe had that background and was interested in diving a little bit deeper, like how they should think about approaching compilers? Yeah, that's a great question. Whenever I, I try to tell, you know, like my mom about what a compiler is, I'll say it's a translator between two languages, right? And just typically the language you're translating from is a language that people understand and the language you're translating to is a language that the, the computer understands, right? But it doesn't always have to be in that direction. I think if someone wanted to get into compilers, so a tiny project that people sometimes do is they take a, a little snippet of a language, like the most basic thing you can find, even just like a math language, like a add, multiply, divide, and then just see if you can be able to write like a little little portion of that, maybe a math sentence, and get the computer to tell you a result. I think that is the start of sort of like the minimum viable product of what a compiler is. But yeah, as far as books or anything, I don't know. I don't remember any one particular resource. That's fine. What about for Elixir? Do you have any resources that you like to recommend for Elixir, especially underrated? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I love, and this is like also showing my highway background, but I love the syntactic reference for Elixir. It's just like a one page, one pager on the web. You can find it if you search Elixir syntactic reference. But it sort of tells you all of the things that the weird syntax in Elixir that you kind of mix. Like there's three different ways to write keyword lists. And the Elixir syntactic reference lists that all out for you, makes it super clear, sort of the all of the syntactic sugar that exists in Elixir. So I think that's my go-to when I'm a little confused on what something might do. I just look it up in the reference. I also like the metaprogramming Elixir book by Chris McCord. So macros are in a similar vein. That's actually one of my recommendations. Is if you want to get into compilers, you can start with macros because they are modifying the Elixir abstract syntax tree, which is one of the initial steps of a compiler is turning the program into a tree. I think macros are a very powerful, sometimes dangerous tool that Elixir has kindly exposed to us. So speaking of macros, you gave a, a talk at CodeBeam this year all about macros. Uh, do you want to briefly mention that? And then I guess, does Brex use them at all? And like, how has that gone? Sure. So at the beginning, Brex was really macro happy, right? We had a lot of macros. Everything from our struct and schema definitions to how we were doing our, our client server wiring and testing, just, you know, in every area we had a macro. Some macros we had even were just macros of convenience that didn't do anything except import and alias modules. And they were really silly macros, but we were so excited about this tool that we kind of put them in everywhere we could. Now that we, <laughs> to honestly our detriment, right? So some people who joined Brex, they would complain that they had to learn Elixir and then they had to learn this Brex version of Elixir with all of the macros. So since then, we've really cleaned up our act and been a, a lot more careful about sort of the macros we add and like what really is a good use case versus what is sort of a frivolous use case and that's only going to introduce confusion. Some I'm the rules, worst offender. <laughs> <laughs> some rules I would give is that if your macros are, are enforcing best practices, reducing boilerplate and just in general saying there's one way to do one thing, that's good right? You don't want to introduce too much choice. If you're introducing a macro that gives you multiple ways of doing things, now there's like not a clear best practice, and maybe it also isn't enforcing any particular best practice, I, I would say you probably don't need that macro. And then there's some macros that you add because it, it makes the ergonomics of the language better. But I would say those you have to be careful with too, right? Sometimes they can just make people confused, especially when they try to go look it up and they find that it's not in the Elixir hex docs. So I'd say for, for any macro you add, you really need to have it well documented and then evangelized. So you're like, this is the way we're doing it in this code base. I wonder if there's like some kind of way to have kind of an internal Elixir documentation that mirrors the official documentation with all of your internal docs sort of appended. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That would be a cool thing to do. That would be cool, yeah. I know you can, uh, with xdocs, you can generate your own docs that look a lot like the Elixir docs. But yeah, it's tough when people don't know, should I search in the Elixir docs? Should I search in the Brex docs? And mm. it's also a little tough right now with xdocs. It's it's hard if you have multiple libraries. So we have like many, many libraries. We wish we could have them all in one searchable place. But right now we have xdoc per library. 
And mm. now you also have to know which library to look in. Okay. So we'd love to call out like little things that people who are looking for open source opportunities could do. And I feel like this doc compilation project is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. That'd yeah. Be awesome. And probably a good way to get a job at Brex <laughs> if you build it and then apply. I want to uh, kind of circle back to a question about professional development, like growth. How do you think about developing your own skill set now that you're like out of school and have to drive yourself to be motivated and to develop your skill set? And also for people on your team, if you lead any more junior developers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, starting at Brex, I had a lot of professional development to do because I was coming from more of a specialist area. And then I was put into the startup as a general purpose software engineer. So just learning all the tools and the tricks of the trade, I did a lot of watching and reading. At Brex, we write a lot of design docs. So I, I feel like I learned a lot from watching other people write design docs and seeing what feedback people were giving on those docs. I think now that yeah, I am in a more senior position, I sort of guide other engineers on my team. I think I, I definitely am working on giving precise feedback. I think you have to be a little careful about giving too much feedback all at once. So like working on giving feedback in a way that like grows, lets people focus on one thing at a time, I think is really good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just also expanding to other areas, right? So I, I think one way to grow scope is to increase the vagueness of your problems. So I've been working on problems and projects that are a bit more amorphous, right? Sort of tackling you're like, okay, well, I, I don't even know exactly what the problem is. But then you go into your brainstorming mode and you pull people in and you're like, I think having a, a good network at work of people to talk to and brainstorm with is really good. We also have a note in here for something called Code 2040. What is that? And I guess, how are you involved? Yeah, I'd love to talk about Code 2040. So Code 2040 is a program for Black and Latinx programmers. They have a few different programs. One is a program for people going into their first internship. And another one that I did is their early career accelerator program. So I think Code 2040 does really great work in giving their participants the insider knowledge that they may not have gotten elsewhere that people normally get after like a few years of industry experience. So how to like managing up, right? How to sort of set expectations. And they also do really good work with the companies they work with, making sure those companies are you know, providing an inclusive environment. Yeah, I was in this early career accelerator program, and I also served as a mentor for their college program where people are going into their first internship. So I highly recommend, I think it's a great way to get involved and to sort of like meet the future programmers of the world. So let's talk a little bit about architecture. First, we'd like to ask this question to all, I think nearly everybody that's been on this season has gotten this question and we've got a lot of interesting answers. So it is, what is the difference in your view between architecture and design? That's an interesting question. I listened to some of the other episodes on this season and I was surprised at the range of answers, right? It seems very philosophical. So to me, I would say architecture is really in the schematic. So it's what are the entities? How are they communicating with each other? What are the technologies you're using? Really rigorous and cut and dry. 
design, you know, when I hear the term design, I think it's a lot more broad, right? And it's very context dependent. When I think of design, the question I ask is like, you know, how do I want it to work? And then I answer that question based on the area that I'm working on, and it's less tied to the particular technologies I use. Mm -hmm. And do you have any opinions on the other question we like to ask everybody, because it seems sort of elixir focused in the context of context is, do you have any opinions on domain driven design? Yeah, so I think I'm, I'm really lucky working in this. So most of the things I build are for other engineers, right? In this like tech for tech space. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm lucky that my domain of implementation really matches the place I'm also building for. And so I don't have to think too hard about like, okay, what are these engineers going to want? Because I have like a natural compassion <laughs> and, and empathy for their plight. <laughs> but I think once you, as you get into other areas that are a little more far from tech, like education or healthcare, right? I think it is just really necessary that you bring in those those domain experts because you know, it's hard to like have that empathy at a distance, right? And you can just find out so much more, even if they're not telling you your whole design, right? But you can just find out so much more by by reaching out. And do you want to talk a little bit about your process, especially like at the very beginning when you have a new feature requirement, especially with something like Brex, where like you said, it's tech for tech, which means that it's like very abstract, right? Like it's, there's not some external industry or something necessarily that you're applying it to. How, when you get a new feature, how do you think about breaking it down, deconstructing it? What's your process? So first, I definitely like to look at what's happened before. I think this is also my like my personal nerdiness area, right? Is that I like to look at, you know, what were the decisions made before that led the code to be the way it is that we now have to change it? I think a lot of insight can come from looking at those previous decisions and seeing like what decisions do you want to maintain? And you think we're like good, and then what actually led to mistakes. And then in my process, I really, I think it comes from my math background and also Brex's culture, where I like to really write down everything I'm going to do before I do it. So we have a pretty heavy design doc culture at Brex, and I'll, I'll write down pretty heavily what's my architecture, what's the endpoints I'm going to have, what will they look like, the tables, you know, depending on the area. How will someone use it and interface with it and have that all laid out before? Some people might think that's a little heavy handed, but for me, I think it catches a lot of bugs before you get to implementation. And definitely when you're, you need fewer iterations if you kind of do a good, a good design process. Yeah, that, that sounds very thorough. Have you done like a blog post on what like an example of this might look like that we can, we could share to just kind of see in more detail? Yeah, I think I haven't written one, but we have one from Brex on how we designed our reward service. So that might be a good doc to look at. I'll send you guys the link. We're always like looking things up as we go through this conversation and kind of adding them. Maybe we will find it, but I'm not finding it right now. Yeah, I love this idea of kind of like forensic exploration at the beginning of a feature, especially when you're inherit. I mean, we inherit a lot of code from other developers and that forensic sort of exploration of how you got to where you currently are really, really makes it easier to decide how to architect whatever is coming up. How would you describe Brex's architecture? Broad, I mean, you don't have to get into like IP or anything, but like, you know, just broadly speaking, do you guys have like a set of patterns that you're using or thinking about microservices, microliths? Does some buzzword apply here? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I would say we have a microservice architecture. We started out as sort of a, a I guess, maybe a micro like a microservices, but our database was all together in one big database. So it wasn't quite broken up as individual as we wanted to. But yeah, we've been definitely moving towards making each service even more isolated and individual so that we can deploy them on their own. So is a microlith a bunch of services and one of them is interacting with the database or is it a bunch of services all interacting with your database? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so at first it was, it was a bunch of services, <laughs> but then all interacting with one database. So not wow. nearly as isolated as we wanted. <laughs> Yeah, essentially a, a monolith, right? With a nice <laughs> a nice service on top. That just sounds terrifying. Like mm-hmm. how do you manage reads and writes? But yeah, go on how like the evolution, how did it play out? Yeah, so we we've been working um the database isolation part is just, you know, a a slog of going through and pulling each table out, <laughs> putting it in its own database. There's nothing pretty there's nothing very enlightening there. But for the microservices, we have been messing around with how we have them talk to each other. So starting out in all Elixir, they could kind of talk to each other however they wanted. And we actually had this set of macros in this library called Micro that would allow us to have an abstraction on how they talk to each other. And we could plug and play different transport layers. We started out with RabbitMQ and we had messaging queues for different services to talk to each other. That worked pretty well for a while. We were having some issues where our queues would get overloaded, especially if a message was wrong, a bad message in some way, it would replay over and over. So we decided to move. We moved to just service-to-service communication, and we did that with the protocol gRPC. But still, we were just doing Elixir to Elixir, and we were doing this thing where we were encoding into using Erlang binary to term. We call it Erl pack. I think it's from Discord. It's just a way to serialize Elixir into a string. But now, you know, that we are sort of expanding our, our outlook at Brex to have more languages, we need a way that we can talk between services that will work for multiple languages. So that's why we're moving to Protobuf. And that's what inspired all the Protobuf Elixir changes that we've been making. What extra languages are is Rex thinking of taking on then? If you're like one of the few only like Elixir only <laughs> startups. Yeah. So we have some services in Go. A lot of our infrastructure is in Go. Sometimes Go has just been a, a better fit. And then we're also thinking about Kotlin a little bit. People I when I was back to Java. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see how it goes. There's still, some of them are still in experimental phases. We also have some legacy Python services. So we at least don't want to be blocked by, oh, these two services can't talk to each other because they don't have a a way to interface. So we have a, a question here about chaos engineering. Is that one of ours or? Yeah, that was, that was added by me. Yeah. So oh, I, I okay. added that while we were, while you were talking about microservices. So this, this might be a bit of a surprise. So Brex sounds like it might be big enough that I don't know if you've heard of chaos engineering and like, if you have, do you all employ that? Also, can you explain it to me? (laughs) Sure. So for the audience, chaos engineering is, if you've heard of chaos monkey from Netflix, it's just kind of a, like, there's a Wikipedia page, and there's also like a one, one page site that talks about, you had mentioned in your design docs, 
dealing with like retries and fault tolerance and whatnot. And so this is specifically set up to you will have a, a scheduled, I'm going to delete something in production. And you have to say like, this is how much I expect it to explode out. And like you tell people that it's going to happen, that you are that you know are going to going to be influenced and whatnot, and then they can know that they're working and etc. So it's it's a lot of purposefully creating fires. So I guess it's it's like the Forest Service will like do controlled burns so that you don't have like a, <laughs> a massive fire. Which I feel like I'm this is my entire there. life. I didn't know there was a word for it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I would say periodically we have done things like that. We've either hired some firms or we actually had our observability team, which owns like the whole the whole logging, just like in general, being able to observe and monitor your code. They actually went in and in secret placed some embers <laughs> to see how our systems would react and, and also how our people would react and how they would debug. So we do it from time to time, but I would say not quite as as full scale. Definitely, though, our yeah, I think I think that's the answer I'm willing to give. <laughs> oh my god, we work in the best industry. <laughs> it's just full of weird stuff. Does Brex use umbrella applications at all? So we started with an umbrella, and we have since moved outside of an umbrella. So we have some apps in the umbrella, some outside of the umbrella, and we're in this sort of split state. I would say we we suffered originally because of our umbrella app choice. So we were experiencing these like very slow compile times. With the umbrella, we were shipping like all the source code with every service, <laughs> every pod. And you know, we also had this weird problem where in our build system, the umbrella would compile, but then each app individually, like sometimes they would fail. And so we we had this like lack of consistency and those broken builds would then like fly under the radar and we'd deploy broken code. So yeah, we definitely suffered a bit. But switching to being outside of the umbrella, there's also some pain points. So for example, with this protobuf elixir library, like if I want to make a change and then have all of the apps now on this new change, I have to go through and update every single app outside of the umbrella individually. And sometimes that's like 50 apps. It's update every mix lock and every mix EXS. So that is also quite painful. So I think in either world, I'm not too happy. And I'm wondering if, if anyone else has had any good ideas. We've had a couple people this season, like mention umbrellas in a positive light. So I don't know when this episode is coming out in the context of those episodes, but I, I can say that we have confirmed positive experiences with Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, so we had a listener send in an email saying that they were pretty happy with it. I know at least one other person, Mark Erickson, who's on an Elixir mix and now thinking an Elixir or whatever, yeah, thinking Elixir, uses it at his jobs. The episode that came out today by accident or yesterday by accident <laughs> So people can guess when we're recording this. Joanna Larson uses it and has good experiences from it. She talks a bit about it in that. And she pointed out that most of the issues around Umbrella apps were people were using it wrong and not at the correct abstraction, I guess, of it. I don't know. And like you just needed better tooling. So, mm. yeah. I, I, I remember what I was going to ask Lizzie, which is, um, 
like all these issues that you ran into kind of early on, if you were going to start all over, like rebuild Brex from the ground up, would you go with the microservice architecture again or how would you do it differently? Yeah, I think I would go with the microservice architecture. I wouldn't try to do that fun plug and play transport. I would just write all of our services with gRPC and protobuf from the start, right? So sort of we gave ourselves too much flexibility and optionality and it ended up biting us in the butt. I think yeah, it's it's tough, right? Because no one wants to write microservices like from the very beginning. <laughs> it just feels like you can get up and running so much faster if you have everything in one place. So it's hard to like look back and and be super critical, but yeah, I think at least as we've matured, we're we're making better decisions now. We already talked about macros a little bit and libraries. You already mentioned protobuf, but I think there's one that you didn't get to mention, brex.result. Mm, yeah. yeah, so brex.result is a was one of my first projects, a very Haskell-inspired library. So oh, got the Haskell <laughs> name drop in here. Okay, that's good. So um, you know, in Elixir you have this tuple pattern that comes up a lot, the okay and error tuples. And if there was only a way to sort of pass them, people have done it before, but Brex result is the one we use, a way to sort of pass the tuples along. And if there is, if it's an okay tuple, continue and do whatever calculation you want to do on your result. And if it's an error, just propagate the error all the way down. So it works like the either monad in Haskell, and essentially, yeah, it's just propagating propagating errors. But it makes it so you don't have to continually kind of like bind and then do a case or a with. You can just have a stream of, of pipes so you can streamline your code a little bit. Wow. And we even fit monads into the episode. Wow. This has been <laughs> great. Super duper. I feel like we just hit some sort of hat trick. I want to give you the last few minutes of the episode to make any like plugs, asks for the audience, a shameless self-promotion or shameless else promotion, whatever you want. The time is yours. <laughs> yeah, well, I, have, I don't have that much to plug, but I think we've talked a little bit about yeah that fork of Protobuf Elixir we're maintaining. Brex result is our, our open source. It's open source, so you can go find it on our Brex GitHub. And then, yeah, I also just... The recording of my macro talk is on YouTube. So if you want to hear more from me, but yeah, that's kind of it. And you can find links to all of that in the show notes. Lizzie Paquette, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, thank you. Before we close out, we've got to share another edition of Pattern Matching with Todd. Friend of the podcast, Todd Resedek, is asking members of the Elixir community five questions to help us all get to know each other better. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for joining me for another installment of Pattern Matching with Todd, where I ask your favorite Elixir personalities five questions in an attempt to get to know them better. My guest today is well known for her great articles on Elixir School. Taking time from her work at GitHub, welcome Sophie De Benedetto. Hey Todd, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today. Let's jump right into the five questions because I'm really interested in these. Where were you born? So I was born here in New York, and now I live in Brooklyn, been in Brooklyn with my partner for about, uh, we've been in Brooklyn for like almost eight years, living also with our dog, who if anyone has seen any of my talks, you've seen pictures of my dog. He is actually like genuinely very photogenic. I'm not just one of those people that wants you to look at their dog. You know, I have a good reason to want you to look at my dog and okay. yeah, camping out in Brooklyn. 
Cool. Yeah, I remember the big elixir. You had your partner had made some really, really nice illustrations of your dog for your slides. So that was pretty amazing. Kudos to her for that. <laughs> Thanks. I'll pass that along. She'll be pleased. So before we move on, I've lived in New York City. I know a lot of people that live in New York City, but I can't think of the last time I talked to somebody who was born in New York City. So what what area were you born in? So I was born in, I mean, I certainly don't remember this part of my life, but my family was on the Upper West Side around the time that I was born. We lived in Riverdale in the Bronx for a while. Mostly I grew up in, in Westchester, though. We had moved out of the city. Then my folks moved back to the Bronx. Then they moved back to Westchester, and now I'm in Brooklyn. They're mostly in Westchester, although, uh, you know, full disclosure, we're recording this mid-pandemic, and we've been at my family's place in Westchester, like about an hour outside of the city. Very lucky to have a little bit of space to spread out in, backyard for the dog, but I certainly miss Brooklyn a whole lot. Yeah. Well, glad that you're you're being safe in Westchester. There's a lot worse places you could be hanging out right now, I suppose. Yeah, very true. So have you had any careers before you were a programmer? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm one of those like career change programmers. I've been writing code for a living for about five years now. And before that, I did a lot of different things. I was a babysitter and a nanny. I cleaned apartments. And then around the time that I started learning how to code, I was primarily working in standardized test prep. I tutored the LSAT, which is the law school admissions test. Because once upon a time, I was going to be a lawyer when I grew up. And luckily, I sort of panicked like two weeks before I was supposed to start law school. And I was just kind of like, oh, my God, what am I doing? This is not actually what I want. Pulled out at the very last minute. Not a very popular decision amongst you know <laughs> parents and family members. Everybody was like, what the heck are you doing? But eventually, I made my way to programming. I kind of started getting interested in it because of a friend of mine, actually, who went through a programming boot camp, the Flatiron School, and it really just opened my eyes to it. I always sort of thought of it as something that I could never learn. I, I don't really know why. Like, I think that's kind of BS, you know, obviously looking back at it, but I just sort of counted it out for myself. I wasn't always, a, you know, was never like a math and science person, you know, I have a liberal arts degree and all that. But seeing other people that I knew go through that process made me realize that it was something that could be possible. And then once I started exploring it, and once I started learning, I just became kind of obsessed. I think that's something that I'm sure will resonate with people, right? You just a little problem sneaks its way into your brain, and you absolutely do not want to put it down until you've figured out this bug or kind of made this connection or shipped this thing. So I also went through a programming boot camp, the Flatiron School. When I graduated, I started teaching there. I've also worked on their engineering team. And it absolutely changed my life. I feel like so lucky that I found that place. I fell in love with it. I found this incredible community of people so dedicated to teaching and learning and uh, really just never looked back. Okay. All right. I don't want to skip over this. This is really interesting. So most of the programmers that I've interviewed so far, I feel like almost all of them are like, oh yeah, I've always been a programmer. I knew I wanted to be a programmer since I was a kid. Started working as a programmer when I was 18 or maybe even less. So it's really nice to talk to another person who didn't know they were going to be a programmer right out of the womb. So presumably you went to undergrad. So just maybe where did you go and what did you study? So I studied history. Uh, I went to Barnard College, which is the Women's College of Columbia. So uptown Manhattan. And, you know, on the one hand, I 
had an incredible college experience, you know, did the whole made lifelong friends and kind of grew up as a person living on their own, especially in New York City, which is a very interesting experience to say the least. And of course, I learned stuff like I'm absolutely not going to sit here and like denigrate my education. But I studied history, I graduated with a liberal arts degree. And I kind of was a little bit adrift, I think when I graduated, didn't really know what I was going to do with this degree. There was nothing that really spoke to me at that point in my life. And that's kind of, I think why I stumbled my way towards law school. It wasn't so much that I felt, you know, drawn passionately to a career in law, although I continue to watch so much Law and Order. Um, We'll get get to that. We'll get to that. It was more just like, yeah, what am I going to be when I grow up? I guess can has go back to school and learn more stuff. And then you get a job as a lawyer. Like that's a thing that you can do. And I don't know, luckily, I kind of snapped out of it. I couldn't sort of make myself go through this process when I knew that it wasn't what I was really passionate about. And that was a hard decision to make because I didn't have some other idea of like what it was going to be for me. I almost feel like it was just luck or chance that I found my way to programming. But I feel, you know, like I said earlier, so lucky that I did because I feel like I was just I was meant to be a programmer. Oh, that's that's really awesome. And probably good that you snapped out of it before you spent all the money on oh, law God, school. Oh, yeah. Didn't get my deposit back, but that's a lot better than being for yeah. many years of law school. Yeah. I know I know at least one programmer that went to a boot camp who um, went all the way through pharmacy school. And not a oh. cheap pharmacy school either. <laughs> an expensive yeah. pharmacy school. Yeah. So, yeah. Thankfully, his parents didn't kill him. Uh, but I'm sure they wanted <laughs> yeah. to. Yep. Been there. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Did you have lawyers in your family? Like... No, no lawyers in my family. I think, you know, my parents would have just been very proud to have a lawyer in the family and it didn't shake out that way. And, you know, of course, my family is, you know, proud of me and happy for me now, but it's the kind of thing where they have absolutely no idea what I do all day. And I still have, I was talking to my uncle, I think, recently, but just before I started GitHub and I was trying to explain to him like, oh yeah, I got a new job. It's great. And I kind of ended up, ended up just saying, oh yeah, you know, Microsoft, it's Microsoft. And he was like, kind of shook his head a little bit. Yeah, you know, that's great, but you could have could have really been somebody. Oh, man. <laughs> Yikes. So, you know, it's fine. I don't take it personally. Okay. Wow. I mean, it's good that they have high expectations of you, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Could be the other way around. All right. Thanks for sharing that. Let's shift gears. So question, third question is, what's the genre of the last song or album you listened to? So look down at your Spotify. <laughs> yeah. what, what is on there right now? So like everyone, I'm working from home at the moment with my partner who also works from home full time. And lately, I've just been not listening to my own music, but just hearing her from two rooms over, like singing along to Celine Dion and that she has her headphones on. So I'm not even hearing the music. I'm just singing. I'm hearing her like sing all the parts, even the instrumental parts of all of Celine Dion. So that's, uh, I don't recommend it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I didn't want to like, I wasn't sure if it was cool or not, but that sounds really, really horrible. <laughs> it's not um, good. Yeah. Okay. So if you do listen to music, maybe just give me an example. I don't know. I guess I have a pretty eclectic taste in music. I have actually really enjoyed Spotify did a, um, what did they do? Like playlists for your astrological sign. And I'm not overly into astrology, but I thought, all right, I'll listen to it. And I absolutely loved it. And it was kind of cool just to have different things sort of come to my attention that I would have never listened to otherwise. So if you haven't checked out the Spotify astrology recommendations, maybe give it a listen. All right. Listeners out there, figure out what your astrology sign is and then go on Spotify. 
and find a find the playlist. All right, so let's get back to your TV preferences. So mm-hmm. is there a movie or a TV show that you're going to, like even if you were watching something else and then you flip through the channels, that you're going to stop and, and just start watching that every time? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, I've been a big fan basically my entire life of Law & Order, which is possible because I feel like it's been on air for basically my entire life and the reruns are on like, I don't know, I don't understand how so many channels can all be airing Law & Order reruns at the same time, but it's great because if you're really crazy like me, you can even use the commercial breaks to watch two episodes of Law & Order at once and you've seen them enough times, so like it's fine if you miss something. I just love it. It's like so formulaic, especially the old ones really remind me of the New York that doesn't exist anymore, the New York of like the 90s or 20 years ago. And it's been a great comfort to me in these uncertain times. Okay. I've never seen the show. So what's the formula? Oh my gosh. It's just like the original crime procedural. So the first half hour is like two detectives solving a crime. And then the second half hour is the plucky, you know, assistant district attorney prosecuting the crime. And it's interesting. It kind of goes back and forth between being like really campy and and then just kind of like a little bit more serious. But it's good. It's a classic. Okay. I I don't know why (laughs) I've never watched it before, I guess. I think before that, they had like Hill Street Blues. Yeah, um, that was probably a bit a little bit before that. Perry Mason. Yeah. Maybe for our parents. Same kind of Mm -hmm. a deal. Matlock. We want to shift the demographic to an older crowd. Thank you for joining us today. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Last question. What project are you most excited about working on next? Or maybe you're currently working on it and you're looking forward to picking it back up. So like I imagine many people who are listening, I'm very excited about the latest release of Phoenix, played around a little bit with live dashboard and telemetry. I went on like pretty big telemetry kick over the past couple of weeks and did something of a deep dive trying to understand how it works under the hood. And I was actually really surprised by how shouldn't have been surprised, but I was really surprised by how simple and elegant it was because a lot of the language that I've heard people use when they talk about Elixir and Erlang's telemetry offering is telemetry events are like published and you're subscribing to telemetry events. So I just naturally assumed like PubSub would come into play there, but it's not PubSub, it's an ETS table and it's just really cool how it all comes together. So I did some writing about that over at Elixir School. Certainly would love anyone and everyone to check that out. And as always, we're always open to contributions over there. I'm just kind of excited to keep getting my hands dirty with Phoenix, with Live View, with Live Dashboard. Not working with Elixir professionally right now, sadly, but hopefully some side project opportunities will arise. And uh, yeah, we keep keep working on that stuff. Cool. Yeah, I think there's a common thread. I guess a lot of people are really excited about the stuff that's happening in both in telemetry and in Live View. And I think a lot of us owe you a debt for all your writings that you've done this year (laughs) on Elixir School for that. So I know when I was getting started in January, there wasn't, I mean, there's still not a lot of resources, but like your blog posts were definitely some of the most helpful just in getting started with the live view experience. So thank you for that. Happy to hear that. And you or others should write new stuff because it's changing constantly. There were like two releases in the past couple of weeks and definitely the more content, the better off that we will all be. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think a lot of the people I've talked to were all trying to solve the same problem for the first time. And like a year from now, there will be like nine people that have all solved it. And so the next wave of people getting into live, you maybe have a a little easier time getting started. So maybe one one of us should 
take it upon ourselves to start documenting all this stuff for the sake of the others. One, two, three, not it. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Sophia. It was good to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. All right. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to Lizzie Paquette and my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Leave those reviews. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Justice Epen and Eric at Eric Ostrich. And join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more on system and application architecture. Mm-hmm.